from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, through a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those of other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in 
for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who are at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who knows the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsel? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Thank you, Liz. Um, well done. Really well done. That's a long chapter. See, you get an applause. Isn't that nice? I hope I get that at the end. Are you going to do that for me at the end of my sermon? Huh? Uh, I didn't think so. Um, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a long chapter. And wow, is it if it doesn't give you a popsicle headache, um, I'm not sure what will. This is one of those that just goes back and forth and, you know, this contradiction in there. It's like, you know, has God rejected his people? The answer is yes, no. No, yes. The answer is no, not really. Yes, in some ways. And so this is part of the confusion that it, it creates for many. Additionally, it seems to be like God has hardened literally national Israel, like the, the nation of Israel, although at the time that this is being written, Israel is not a nation. Uh, Israel is a, an ethnic group, religious group, that is under um, the control of Rome. Um, but still, Paul seems to be addressing that, like these people have been hardened for the sake of <clears throat> bringing in Gentiles, and Gentiles simply means non-Jews. Um, so let me uh, address uh, sort of four um, movements that I see in chapter 11 and then um, apply it to what's happening today in, in us, in our lives, and in our, our country, our world. The question is, has God rejected Israel? That's a big question that Paul starts out with. And, um, and that's a question that uh, we may not be asking because we're not asking that question 
those particulars aren't the particulars of today. But the larger question that Paul is addressing, and he's been playing out through Rome, uh, through through the Book of Romans, is this larger question of where is God in the midst of my circumstances? Where is God when I have thought I thought God was was good? I mean, I I understood God to be good. I understood God to be loving. I understood God to be caring. And the implication then is. Why isn't this happening in my life right now? Why am I not seeing that? Right. That's a question that's asked over and over again in various different ways throughout the Bible. Because that's a human question. If you've never asked that question, you've never thought. If you've never asked that question, you've never experienced difficulty in your life. Let me put it this way. If you've never asked that question, you're not in the game. You're still in the stands. You're still in the audience. You're still observing but you're not yourself involved. Once you get involved in the game, that's when you get hit hard. That's when all the plans, who was it? Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan until you get hit in the face, punched in the face. It's very true. It's like you have this plan and you go about it and you think I'm going to execute this. And then all of a sudden, what happens? You get hit in the face. Real life. And then all this trust that you had in the coach, all this trust you had and the one telling you that this plan will work if you work the plan you start to question. It's the same thing with God. Where's God? Where's God in the circumstances? Because God is supposed to be good. And for those of us who are really nice people, and we want to hold on to being nice and nice to God, and we sort of give God a pass, what happens is the darkening happens within us nonetheless. We sort of, we sort of pull back. We create theologies. So let me give you one that would have been created that's created today. Many evangelicals speak about the return of Jesus Christ. Christ is coming back. The world is going to hell. I just saw this from a pastor of a large church that I knew. I graduated with him. He's, uh, he does this whole thing on the rapture. You know, God's coming back. Don't worry. In the end, that things, will, things will, will, will return, you know, back to the way they should be. And what I hear in that is in some cases, there's a hope. There's like a, like, hold on to your hope. But it seems to me that it also creates, and as one who grew up in this world, I know the impact of it from a personal level, is that it, it, it's part of our theology to make sense of our pain, that in this moment, I don't see Christ. And so I hope that at some point, God, God is going to come back and then save the day. But for right now, I have lost something. I have lost my sense of God in the present. Let me put it in another way. For those of you who've had this this experience of your faith awakening, maybe you can trace it all the way back to maybe 20 years ago, maybe uh, 30 years ago, maybe 50 years ago. You had this moment of faith and in this experience of awakening. And when that happened to you, can you recall in those days that followed a sense of where is God? I can't see God anywhere and then kind of putting it off into the future. Maybe Christ will come back someday. No, <laughs> you didn't. Because in the moment, it wasn't where is God. The moment In that moment, it was more of like where God is not. I mean, I, where, I can't, there's nowhere God isn't. Everywhere I go, I see God. Are you with me, folks? Have you had those experiences where you wake up and you feel the, you know, God's love in you and all around you, and everywhere you look, you see it? You're not hoping for the future. You're living engaged in the very present moment because God is here. This is the problem that Paul 
is addressing with his own people, the Jewish people. Your question is, where's God's promises? Where are they? Because we are not experiencing it. And it's really disappointing. And so Paul addresses that directly. The question he asks, of course, is, has God rejected Israel? And the answer he gives is yes, no, no, yes. He says, on one hand, yes, God has temporarily. This is why the ancient teachers taught in paradox, because that's our experience. <laughs> we experience contradiction all the time. We experience hope and sadness, joy and sadness, right, together. Sometimes we experience this moment of clarity and at the same time, moments of confusion. Right. So those, those, are, those are common experiences. And Paul is addressing that by saying, yes, on one hand, it seems as if God has hardened the hearts of the people of Israel. And at the same time, God isn't doing this permanently. And then what he does is he does this interesting twist where he says, what he's been saying from Romans chapter 2, which is that true Israel is not national Israel. It is made up of all people who are able to tune in to the grace of God in this moment right here and right now, and who are receiving it, who are taking it in. That's true Israel, and that has always been true Israel. And so in some cases, God hardens the insiders because the insiders, that's us, by the way, we are always the ones who are the first to lose that. We gain it and then we lose it. And we start experiencing the first pain of life, as I talked about, which causes us to then go, where is God in the midst of our pain? And then it prolongs. And as it goes on and on, we begin to slow down in our joy in our gratitude in our experience of God's grace. And if that goes further, then we become the ones that look like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. Let me remind you of the story of the prodigal son, because everything that Paul is speaking about comes from that parable. That is the, to me, that is the penultimate parable of the Gospels. It is the point that that Jesus is pointing to as this is the message. If you get this, everything hangs on that. And so the story is that of a son who comes to his father and says, I want my inheritance now. I wish you were dead so I could have your money now. And the father says, okay. And he gives him his inheritance. The son goes out and wastes all that. Right? This is a parable, a story not a real thing that happened. The son goes out, spends all his money, wastes everything. That's why it's called the prodigal. Prodigal means wasteful. He goes out, he wastes everything. And then he comes to his senses and he says, uh, I, I'm going to come back home because I've, I've clearly done something stupid. And let's see if my father will take me back home. Well, on his way home, he sees the father from a distance because the father came every day looking to see if his son would return. The son returns. The father says, fantastic. I'm going to interrupt your apology while you're apologizing. Stop apologizing. I'm so happy you're home. Here is new clothes. Here is your position again. 
I'm going to celebrate through a big party. What happens to the older brother? The older brother hears about the party. He doesn't come in. He doesn't go to the party. He hangs back. And he becomes angry. And then he has this argument with the father. And the face says to the father, I have slaved for you all these years, but this son of yours goes out and does all of this, and you throw a party for him. And the father says to him, everything I have is yours. Boy, if that's not the punch, one of the punchlines, we are missing the power of that story. Everything I have is yours. That's the problem. The insider, you, me, the evangelicals, we sometimes lose that reality, that truth, that everything is ours. God has blessed us. God's grace is right here. It isn't off somewhere in the future. You can experience God's love. You can experience the benefit, the blessings right now in this very moment. I think about, uh, for those of you who um, have worked in corporate America, there's a new salesperson that comes in, or a new employee of, in any role. And you've been there for five years, and this person comes in, and they're all excited about the company. They believe in the mission. They're so thrilled about everything that's going on. And they have all this enthusiasm and all this positivity. And they're pouring themselves into the job. And, and, and what happens? Good things are happening to them. And what, what, what's the response of those who've been there for a few years? Cynicism, isn't it? It's sort of like, please, wait till you've been here for a few years. That will be gone in a matter of a couple of years, right? It's the newly married couple all excited to be with each other. And the older married couples are like, please, give it 10 years. We'll see what you say then, right? It's all this stuff. What's happening is when we first enter into something, yes, there's naivete, for sure. But there's also this thing that happens where because we're so hopeful because we see good in the present moment the chances are we experience more good because we're looking for it and we see it in the present moment does that make sense this is what happens to our faith we don't see the present anymore we don't see god in the present moments we don't see and experience that so because we've become darkened and what's the other word that paul uses hardened that then God seems to come along. And this is what makes, to my mind, best sense of this theology of God choosing and God electing and God hardening is that our own hearts become hard and God doesn't just allow it to remain that way with no, you know, no consequences. Because if God allowed it to just continue without consequence, we would stay. Well, let me ask you this question. How many of you have made almost all the changes in your life simply because you thought it was a good idea to make those changes in your life? You, you, no. Most of us, the reason why big changes happen in our life is because, well, we are kind of forced into it. Are you, are, are you with me? Like, difficulty came into your life. It was so painful. You had to leave the painful positions. I mean, if the pain gets worse than the pain of what you're currently experiencing, you're going to make changes. Does that make sense? 
if you're on this slow burn, slow cooker, you're going to stay there. But once the heat is really turned on, you're like, it's time to get out. I got to make a change. I, I wish I could say, I, I, you know, all the changes that I've had. Of course, the way we tell our stories is funny because we tell our stories like we were smart enough to come up with that and that we thought through the decision. And this is the reason why we did what we did. Most of it is because, man, the poop hit the fan. <laughs> I didn't have any choice. I had to get out. Like, that's really what happens. And you know what? That's God's gift. That's God's gift to you. If you didn't have this crisis, you wouldn't have changed. You wouldn't have moved. You wouldn't have grown. So God does harden the hearts. But that's, do you understand the, 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 the big, huge punchline at the end of, of that chapter? God has turned all over to disobedience for what purpose? So that he can have mercy on everyone. You see that? This isn't about Jew and Gentile and all this crap that gets preached on TV and on radio and everywhere else. This isn't that. It's God is saying, I am purposefully doing this so that I can turn all hearts over to me. And in that way, all Israel will be saved. Romans 11. All right. So that's the point that he's getting at. So finally, what I want to say about um, and then, by the way, that this whole part about um, the new person coming in and us experiencing things in the moment, that's the whole idea of jealousy, that Paul is saying God has caused you to become jealous, the Jewish people, so that you can recognize. When that jealousy rises up in our hearts where we see somebody else doing well and we're not doing well, or somebody else who's naive and all excited about the current situation they're in and we're not, you know what that's supposed to do? That's also God's gift to us. It's supposed to cause us to recognize we have lost something. We have lost something in the moment. We have lost the joy, the gratitude. If you feel like you're wealthy beyond comparison, are you jealous of someone else's wealth? No. Not at all. But if you're wealthy, but your soul feels like you're poor, then you will always be jealous. And it's to turn that light on inside you to recognize it's because you actually haven't really received it yet. But when you receive the abundance of God's love, God's wealth, the true riches, you then know. I am truly blessed, and there is no jealousy at that point. And you're living in the present moment of seeing God everywhere all the time. And so when Paul finishes up with this idea of, um, he doesn't finish this up. This is actually in the middle section. He talks about the remnants, and he has this uh, analogy that he draws from with Elijah. And he says, you know, Remember in 1 Kings 19, he's talking to his people who would have known this. Remember in 1 Kings 19, there's a story about Elijah and Elijah's this faithful prophet. And, you know, Israel at that time is kind of not doing so well. And, uh, and, and Elijah feels like he's all alone and he cries out to God and says, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm the only faithful one out of all of these people. God's like, yeah, 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 calm down on your pride and your self-righteousness there, Elijah. <laughs> 
there's 7,000 others who are doing pretty well. Now, what's the point of him saying that to Elijah, but to point out that, look, in that story, there was a remnant, a small amount compared to the large amount. But what's happening here for Paul is he's taking that to say, it's not a small amount versus a large amount. What it is, is that this remnant, it's people that are made up of Jews and non-Jews who are coming to faith. And so what I want to do as a kind of point of maybe giving us some hope is as we look at our situation nationally and we see how things have gotten dark, you see the, 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 po the political atmosphere and it is dark. Social media is so dark these days that it can cause us to say, well, hmm, I just want to sort of block this out or and, you know, some of us get off of Facebook entirely for like, I'm, I'm, I'm done, I'm, I quit. And then we come back to it and then we quit and then we come back to it. And, um, but it's because we're so, we're struggling so much with the darkness that we're experiencing that it can feel like, you know, where is God in all of this? You know, where is God in, in this entire picture? Or you feel like, am I the only one that's really trying to tune into my own personal growth and trying to do the you know, trying to really grow and become a, 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 good, a, a good follower of God. You know, I really want that. And I'm, I'm struggling. And uh, because it doesn't seem like I'm, anybody else is into that. You know? And that can happen in our lives. Maybe happen even in our families where we feel like we're trying to do the right thing. We're trying to grow. We're trying to experience more love, more grace. And others don't seem to be on that same path. And we can become sort of down and maybe even at times self-righteous. But the good news is this. God tells both Elijah and in this point, Paul, the apostle, says, no, no, no. God is doing something and you don't see it right now. You don't see it. But there's something happening in our country. I believe in our country and in our world where God is doing something really magnificent and raising up people. And so in some sense, there are people that are hardening their hearts, and that's all part of God's plan as well, so that they can turn. And so if we can get God's perspective rather than sometimes our own, we start to realize like there's, there's more to it, and that God has to turn up the heat. And even right now, even though it feels ugly, right, it does, it feels really ugly in our world, the heat has to be turned on. And so your job, my job, is to continue to trust that that's what's happening and that that he gets turned up in my life and in your life just as well, right? We're not standing out here looking at everybody else with like, we're the, we're the good ones and you're the bad. No, 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 no. We're all in this together, right? At some points, my own heart gets hard and God has to create this jealousy factor in me for me to go, oh, right, I've lost the story. I've lost my own path, my own, my own way. And at the same time, we can see what's happening in the world and say, oh, God's doing that on a large scale too. But the good news is, and if I can get God's perspective, I see that there's a remnant. There are people being raised up all over the world who are tired of politics, who are tired of their own anger, their own darkness, and who are saying, I want the good stuff. I want the real stuff. Give me 
the grace of God. Give me that love for, for God and love for neighbor. That's what I want in me. I want to live that way. I want to live in the light. And that's happening. And I believe that's happening all over the world. And so I think this is the spirit of what's happening. And I've repurposed a lot from Romans 11. But this is what I understand from Paul's writings from chapter 1 up to this point and all the way to 16. I think this is what he's doing in his day in that context. But this is how it applies to us today in our context, as best as I understand it. So I would love to hear from some of you how this impacted you, what you're hearing there, what some questions, um, maybe some parts here that are confusing to you that you don't understand. I'd love to hear it all. Um, Joel, I guess I would put out there um, that, that whole idea of God hardening someone's heart is really hard for me to reconcile with a God of love. Can you speak more about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and by the way, when I, whatever I'm going to say about this, I'm not saying that I know that this, there, there's, this is several layers. Like there's what the author himself believes, um, which in, in biblical interpretation, this can be scary for some of you, but I mean, I've been doing this for a long, long, long time. Um, so I've worked through some of this stuff and I'm trying to do this, distill this in like 60 seconds, but you have um, what the author himself believes about God. That's not the inspired part of God's word. I don't believe that. And, mo and many scholars today are, 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 are coming alongside and starting to say that very thing because you can clearly see personality, right? So is the personality inspired? We don't know. Like it's, there's, there's contradiction too that, that's clear throughout scripture. There's lots of contradiction. Um, but the point there is there's what the author believes um, at personally, which kind of bleeds through, but then there's truth in there as well. And that truth is really profound and it's universal and I think transcendent. It transcends time, culture, and all of that. Um, so this idea of hardening, so there's, okay, what the author thought, then, then there's what the author is doing with the Old Testament and applying it to his day, right, which was start the start of the New Testament period. Um, and so um, some of the language about hardening is taken from the Old Testament. So it's like, I'm going to take some of these passages that you've understood this way, and I'm going to repurpose them and interpret them differently for the application of today. But the deeper truth transcends through that. So there's this concept of hardening that was Old Testament thought, which is that God both hardens, but there's also the idea of Pharaoh hardens his own heart, right? So there's two authors that say, one says Pharaoh hardened his heart. The other author says God hardened his heart. Right? Two different authors, two different books, two different perspectives. Um, <clears throat> by the time it gets to Rome or to Romans and where Paul is addressing this and has already addressed this in Romans chapter nine, is that the hardening seems to be both. It seems to be that both we harden our hearts and then God does it as well. So to my mind, I think of it, the metaphor that I use is that of God heats up things in our lives when we become hardened, right? Because at the same time, it's very clear in Romans 11 for Paul, at least it's very clear to my mind that Paul is saying, this is about your, your not you, you can't, but you won't turn. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a deliberate act of you resisting God and resisting grace, resisting, you know, love that's coming your way. 
And so for Paul, he, I think he's saying that because you've deliberately resisted that, God's not going to allow you to just go without any sort of change or consequence in your life. Because if you do, you would never change. You would just continue right on and you would create greater darkness in your life and greater darkness in this world. And so God seems to turn that heat up. And that's what I think is the hardening. It's like there's a deeper darkness so that you can see your own darkness and that it becomes a problem to you so that you begin to say, I need to do something about this. I need to change. So I think that's what's going on because that's where he gets to the very end. God has bound all people over to disobedience. Right, so he uses a different term there instead of hardening. He says disobedience, but it's the same idea. God has caused all to become disobedient in order that God might have mercy on all people. So it's that, that kind of end game and end goal that it seems uh, Paul is aiming at or he's saying that God is aiming at. I think what I'm seeing here is a basic principle of we reap what we sow. The context of this passage with Elijah is pretty much an entire nation has rejected God. They've turned to worship Baal. Like we hear from Romans, if, if we suppress the truth in righteousness, God gives us over to that. He gives us our choice, and he hardens our hearts because we chose to reject him in the first place. I mean, we need to take responsibility for our own choices. Even in the kingdom of God, he's not a respecter of persons. This, this applies to every human being. We reject his standards or his holiness or his guidelines. We, we reap what we sow for that. And he gives us our choice. And the only reason, the only way to undo that, that I see, is for us to come to a place where we confess our sins, acknowledge our choices for what they are, whether they be gray areas or a blatant disregard for, for God's ways. And only then do we basically set it right. We get cleansed. So before you say something, Danielle, I just want to say um, in response, just uh, real quick to Neil. Neil, I think that um, the thing that I would caution us against is anything that has to do with sort of a, um, it's on me again. I have to do something um, to work my way back to God. Because that's actually exactly the opposite of what Paul is pointing at, which is that, there is nothing you can do because it's all about receiving. It's all about God's grace. You can't work yourself. He even says right. Israel is zealous. They're passionate, but they're passionate in the wrong aim. And so what Paul is saying is that it's all about your capacity to see the amazing grace and love of Jesus Christ and of God and to actually open yourself up and receive that. And that's the most humble act any human can do. And by the way, it sounds all warm and fuzzy. It's actually the hardest thing you will ever have to do in your life daily. It's a grind for me to constantly recognize I am loved and I receive that love so that it has actual application in my life. I receive it, trust it, believe it, take it in, and then live from that space. And most of us resist that. And it's from pride uh, and various reasons. Danielle, what were you going to say? Yeah, um, this just reminds me so much of when I was getting sober. And um, my sponsor said to me, she was like, is the pain great enough yet? And um, it was like this aha moment of like, oh my gosh, like 
I don't have to be in pain anymore. And, um, but if I hadn't been in that pain, I never would have changed. And you were just talking about that. Um, like until the pain gets great enough, there's no reason to change. Like I would have just kept causing havoc and kept going into the darkness because I just, it wasn't, if it wasn't great, I wouldn't have changed. And, um, it reminds me of like, you can't, I couldn't unharden my heart. It couldn't soften until it got that hard. Like I can't live until I die unto Christ. Like all those, it's just, it just flows. And I learned that from you. Like I've been, um, meeting with my prison ministry group on Wednesday nights and we're really working on that concept of like, grow me Lord. Hmm. And I've been praying that. And when I first started praying it, I was like, hesitant like I want you to grow me but I don't want you to grow me because I know yeah. when you grow me it's going to be painful and it's going to be uncomfortable and yeah. so I was like I was asking it like hesitantly and um but I learned from working with you that like when the pain gets really great and when I get really uncomfortable like that's when God's doing his greatest work so I'm almost grateful for it right now because I know that something really really beautiful is going to come out of this and um but that took a lot it took a lot of time to get to this because I still, I want to grow, but I don't. I don't want to get uncomfortable. I don't want to be in pain, but I know the gifts that come out of it. Like, it just blows me away what's been going on, what God's doing in my life right now mm. in this hard time. Like, I don't, I, I hate what's going on in the world, but I'm so grateful for what it's doing to me inside. Yeah. It's really, I don't know. Yeah. That's all. Wonderful. Thank you. There you are. I just want, yeah, I just wanted to say that was absolutely amazing. And it's so true until you go through something that breaks you or hurts you so bad that you realize God was there all the time, but you didn't see it through the pain. Once that pain starts to subside, you can get away from it. God is now the center of what he should have been in the beginning of the pain. Mm. It sucks to go through the pain or the anguish or whatever word you want to use you grow stronger and you've learned more and you find true people that were there all along. Yeah. That's Thank why you. the prodigal son is just like, wow. Yeah, the prodigal son left. He did what he wanted to do, but the, the father still said like, I still want you back. Just yeah. come back and we will fix one of yeah, really good, Joel. Gosh, guys, I'm so sorry. I just realized I did unmute myself, and I hope you didn't hear that wind blowing too loudly. Joel, that's a really good point that you're making. Um, I just wanted to say real quickly, parenting has taught me so, so much and given me such, uh, such great perspective on, on faith. And so my two thoughts as we're having this conversation are, um, one, the importance of looking at scripture as a whole, um, especially when we read passages like this, you know, and so I think the idea like, is it Paul else? I'm not sure if it's Paul. I think it is Paul elsewhere who says, you know, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Um, and I just, I have found that to be so true. Like it's just <laughs> underscoring what you've already said, Joel, you you've done such an amazing job taking this difficult passage and breaking it down. Um, but really, really, that's what it is. It's not me. It's not me, you know, being witty enough or, you know, um, you know, I just hate, you know, I feel like in so much of the gospel, it's like the gospel of try harder or the yeah. gospel of, um, you know, like just behavior modification, right? Like mm -hmm. let's mod modify our behaviors. Like that's bullshit. That's not yes. what it's about. Like God comes in and changes our hearts. And that's, that's pretty powerful. And as I'm saying this, 
I'm, I was just um, driving and listening and I have, um, I was making a, uh, dropping something off for a friend on her doorstep. And my Karis is like, pardon my French, but she's, I'll, I'll, I'll actually tone it down. She's losing her poop in the car right now. Like Karis is all of two. This is the second big tantrum of the day. And there are times when I, as a parent, like the first time it happened this morning, I tried to come in and do the whole time in thing and just hold her and um, trying to listen to her and calm her down. Sometimes I try to like hold her close to me and, and breathe deeply to mirror that for her. And then quite frankly, there are other times like right now where don't worry, the AC is on and, and you know, it's all safe. I'm right next to her. But I just took a step out of the car because the screaming is just too much for me right now. Now, obviously, God is not limited by my limitations, but I just feel like as a parent, there are times that I try to come in and intervene, and there are times when she just needs to cry it out, and I try to let her do that as safely as possible, um, but then she gets to a point where she's ready to receive it, but she can't until she like just lets everything out, mm-hmm. and I... I think about that in the context of this passage. Like, I think there's something to it. It's not that I'm hardened toward her. Um, I still very much want her to, you know, calm down and, um, and just really want to do whatever I can to help her through this. But there are times when me coming in and really entering into her pain with her helps. And there are times when she just needs space to work it out and then I can come in. Um, so for whatever that's worth, I just want to throw that out there as well. Excellent. Thank you. That's, that's very helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think we can do much better than that, Jen. That was beautiful. <laughs> I love that so much. Ah, what a great day. And uh, what a great ending to Romans 11. Loving God, Jesus gave us this new commandment that really wasn't new, but just a reminder of the golden rule that you gave us in the book of Leviticus. We needed this reminder, and we need to think about it. Often, as the world keeps trying to divide us, Help us to treat others with love so that our behavior will be a witness of your love for us. Amen.